0: My name is Cherise Spano Berdine and I am the CEO of the Pretrial Justice Institute, which is a nationally-based nonprofit organization. We're almost 43
1: years old, located in the District of Columbia. Wow. Well, thank you for being here. You're welcome. I, um, I appreciate it. Thank you for coming to um, support the work here in Minneapolis and to help us figure out what we need to do regarding uh, criminal justice reform, and specifically cash bail. Yep. So I welcome you to our city. Well, thank you.
0: The timing of this is just fascinating uh, for me because... (laughs) So I've been working in criminal justice reform. I'm 48, and I've been working in criminal justice work since I got out of graduate school uh, when I was 24 years old. My first job was at the Justice Department, and my first boss was Jeremy Travis, who is a well-known entity in criminal justice. He was uh, President Clinton's appointee to head the National Institute of Justice, um, where he was for quite some time. Uh, and in his tail end there, um, he and Attorney General Janet Reno sort of launched what is now a commonplace phrase of re-entry, um, and uh, Over the course of my career, um, I have uh, thought about criminal justice policy as um, something sort of ingrained in really focusing on violence, drugs, guns. You know, I grew up wanting to find as many serial killers as I could and just thinking that. the world was this big, bad, dangerous place, and I was going to contribute in some way to making it safer for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I am, you know, 25 years later, and I feel like uh, I have been sort of slowly swimming upstream most mm-hmm. of the time. So, working in reentry, and then I, I went to Chicago and worked um, at the Safer Foundation, which is mm-hmm. one of the nation's largest and oldest reentry service providers. Uh, on the west side of Chicago, serving both the west and south side of Chicago, actually, um, all of greater Chicago. And I didn't do direct service. I was a consultant, sort of an in-house consultant. Um, But I watched my colleagues work to reattach people to housing, employment, and their families, uh, either their kids or their mothers or their aunts or their children. Um, And it seemed like a relatively um difficult struggle uh both in chicago and then when i came back to dc And when i had a chance to go to the pre-trial justice institute i hadn't really thought about bail at all but once i got there i realized we were dislocating people from jobs and housing and family mm-hmm. um during this presumed innocent time mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. often they would just sit there because they couldn't afford to post bond until they took a plea, which suddenly on the day of taking a plea, you become less scary than you did yesterday, and so today you can go home, even though yesterday we couldn't let you go home because you were too dangerous and we had to put a bond amount on you. And I noticed um, that the policy sort of felt like we had built up this, this sort of large mechanism to reattach people to things we were unattaching them to in the first place very little reason. Um, and then over the last couple of years, uh, it has felt like I was already now getting to this part of the world too late, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so whereas post-adjudication, I thought, oh, I'll go before adjudication. I'm now before adjudication, and it still feels too late um, yeah. in the process. Mm-hmm. But the reason the your guests or prior guests are of amusing interest to me is that last year, um, and your podcast listeners can't see me, Mm -hmm. but if they could, what they would see is a 40-year-old privileged white girl. I'm going to call myself a girl until I'm, you know, 88. (laughs) I'm with you sister, (laughs) I am with you. Um, And uh, last year um, through a series of of, you know, finally hitting my head on a, on a wall hard enough, I couldn't figure out why Um, being a good person wasn't enough, feeling uh, like I was being kicked out of a club I thought I belonged to, um, where um, people I admired and respected and and really just felt like I was in lockstep with um, uh, said, "You, you don't even know what you're talking about. And all of this was around the use of assessment tools um, mm-hmm. in pretrial, and uh, I finally um, had a colleague say that um, I had started an equity committee in our organization, and she said, oh, you, you actually think <laughs> diversity is equity. And You've spent 20 years studying racial disparity but you actually don't understand that you're white
1: and what white means. Mm-hmm. Can you because I'm sitting in front of you I can I can feel you in this conversation and um I'm probably confronting my own things in this work um that I'm I'm happy to share but that you know can we just talk personally what of what that did like how you know, because part of what Dr. Robin D'Angelo says is that your intentions aren't enough. That's right. Right, and that we're essentially swimming in racist waters, and to think that we're not impacted by it really is naive at best, right? And I think that after we've matured in the work, we've been in it roughly the same amount of time, we start recognizing where we might be complicit, where we've lacked courage, um, and where we need to do more of our own work. And so you know how, how did you how were you able to hear that now and weren't able to hear that before like why do you or, or?
0: honestly no one ever said it before hmm. so um i don't suffer from fragility yeah. i ride a motorcycle i have tattoos i consider myself a badass and I actually said to a uh, equity consultant that we used years ago for some strategic planning and other things who does a lot of equity work, uh, I was telling her this story and she said, wow, that's really interesting. Why do you think you could hear that? And I said, I don't know, why didn't you ever say anything?
1: Mm.
0: She's a, a woman of color and she said, I, I don't know. I said, because honestly, when, when Tennille said this to me, I was like, oh my God, I have no idea what you're talking about, can you please say more? And I have been a like OCD rabid consumer. I have read like fifteen books. I have taken notes. I have like gone and repaired relationships. I have gone to my board and all of my staff and said, "We're we're going through an equity transformation here. You get on the bus, you get off the bus. This is not optional. Mm-hmm. And if if this organization and this board doesn't want to do it, then I get off the bus because mm-hmm. this is, once I saw this, there was no going back for me.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Um, and no one had ever
0: said it before. It literally had no idea.
1: Do you feel like they've said it before but not as explicit? Because I feel like as a woman of color, we're saying things all the time, but we're, we're maybe, you know, this is where courage comes in, right? Because you're tipping your toe and you're like, well, maybe there's another way to think about it. Or in my community, like, there's this coded way in which we're softly correcting um, or trying to add a perspective of community that we think it might be missing. And so... Do you feel like you're hearing the subtleties around equity now that you've been open up from this very explicit conversation that you were able to have? Because they happen all the time.
0: Um, I would say that I'd been very insulated. Hmm. I think that the Justice Department, where I spent most of my career, was not heavily populated um, with people of color in Manager senior in senior level positions. And I was a senior level person's, you know, coffee girl. So I didn't spend a lot of time in line positions. Um, even in my field work, I was in an odd position in a, an organization where people my age that were doing direct service, um, I didn't fit sort of in with them because I was in a senior level position. Yeah. Um, and, and so I've just, I think I have been... Um, I just n- not I had not had the opportunity before mm-hmm. um, I think also it's my experience of white women of privilege um, is um, A, I think there's a lack of exposure Yeah. and B, I think there's an assumption to the reverse that we are exposed and we are challenged or we see it and we ignore it or, um, actually, I, I mean, I can't speak, uh,
1: Mm -hmm. for. Have you restructured your life in any way to create more exposure? (laughs) Like what does that look like to restructure after this sort of aha moment in life at this age? Yeah. Um, so
0: professionally, um, I mean, I'm just one of those people that most of the, most of the people I spend my time with are, are colleagues, um, so structurally, yes, uh, both in terms of um, I have a lot more opportunity in the advocacy uh, space and the activists who are heavily working in the pretrial and criminal justice space, Um those were the relationships over the last two years that I was hoping to get more connected to. And in those introductory dates, they were like, Oh, you're not even in my club. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. I like, no, you're not. Um, so those are the people that I've gone back to and said, Oh my God, I had no idea what you were like, what was even going on. I'm so sorry. Um, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm committed to. Um, and, You know, I just want to be in dialogue and let me know, like, I'm here to listen and translate what it is. So my organization plays this odd role. So we have for 40 years served as a um, sort of free consultant paid for usually by the federal government to help state and local government do their work in the front end of the system most likely with county government helping them with jail population management. So if jails got crowded, they would call us and say, we think we probably have a lot of people in here pre-trial, can you come and help us figure out what to do? And we would go in and help them figure out how to decarcerate. For 40 years, all of that work has been done without any community voice, without any voice of the impacted. And so, um, over the last, and then two years ago when folks were like, well, here's, we don't actually want the solution, you've been, putting in place for the last 40 years. We don't actually want any of that. We want this whole other model. Mm -hmm. Um, My initial reaction was ridiculous, right? It was, well, where the hell have you been for 40 years when I could have used your help before? And what do you mean it doesn't work? Of course it works. How Mm -hmm. do I know it works? Well, first of all, because a group of people who look like me invented it and we know that it works and it works because the other white people who run these places, they listen to folks like us. and so we have this whole thing down, so don't disrupt this thing we got going. Right, right. Just just sort of stick up for it with us.
1: Can I ask that in your coming to terms with yourself, your work, and I'm really curious, so this has something to do with the Clinton administration too, right? And you know, kind of known for their, their policies they put forth that have um, increased in some ways. Um, the issues that we're trying to solve now in terms of the criminal justice system that maybe right intentions. The impact though, right? And so when we think about the solutions that you worked for, were there things that you that you questioned or you felt like you would have done differently in retrospect based on what you know now?
0: I mean, You know, when you're young, I mean, I was in my 20s, late 20s. Um, You think all these folks who are in their 40s and 50s um, who have these positions appointed by the president of the United States. I mean, you just think this is, these must be the right things to do because these are the folks that have been asked to do these jobs. Um, And, um, you know, even in the um, I was thinking about this recently. I mean, I, I went to graduate school in 1993 and, and criminology theories of crime when we had, we had totally abandoned sort of sociological theories of crime and had moved into individual pathology of crime, right? So now it's the inverse of meritocracy. So everything is your individual fault and people yeah. commit crime because they have some individual Um, lack of care or concern for themselves or their fellow man Um, and so long abandon are the actual causes of crime which are economic and sociological and and environmental Um, and so you grow up learning those if you grew up in that time and you got into this work in that time you were indoctrinated into this idea um, that you inherited that people were responsible individually for their choices Hmm. and therefore the punishment response seems completely logical yeah um uh rehabilitation doesn't actually seem to you could see why it would be abandoned if Mm -hmm. you're making a logical choice to do something purposeful yeah then retribution becomes the thing
1: so in my in my own evolution around criminal justice reform, so number one, I think this goes along with even community policing. And, you know, there's been long, you know, s- stories shared out from communities of color around their treatment and systems, people going to jail that are innocent. Like there's been a, a voice <laughs> echoing around these issues for a long, long, long time that I think more broadly haven't been accepted or, or somehow saying that their their opinion must be skewed, or questioning the you know how valid um, those experiences were. When I really got confronted with this was really around the Khalif Browder story, and this idea that this young man could go to jail for three years for this backpack, and recognition that a big piece of why he was sitting there is because of his lack ability, lack of ability to play um, his his bail and his family's ability to help him out. And um I don't know if I made the connection to the importance of the pre-trial period in relationship to criminal justice reform until about that moment. And of course, I heard about it because celebrities got involved. That's right. <laughs> right? Rosie and O'Donnell. Right, and Jay-Z and everyone yeah. like they get involved. Yeah. You know, they make it mainstream. You got Meek Mills out here, you know, can't travel through the city for, like, popping a willy in the streets and just mm-hmm. what this is happening. And he has access, dollars, money, celebrity moving on this. Um, and then, of course, the Exonerated Five and, and When They See Us coming out on, on Netflix, just this constant kind of bombardment, you know, 13. All these things that are really bringing this um, to the forefront right now and um, you know I'm in a place where I could make some difference and want to make a difference and there's others that want to make a difference on this where do you think the biggest where where would you suggest people plug in because the energy of understanding these stories and then like what do you do
0: yeah so if this were a few years ago I would have a different answer than I do today which is great So, you know, Minnesota's an interesting place. Um, On one hand, you have uh, a couple of counties where they have been sort of involved in, over the long haul, what's been known as pretrial services for a really long time. Ramsey, Hennepin, um, those counties. Dakota, maybe. I'm sorry? Dakota, maybe. Yeah, I mean, more Hennepin and Ramsey, just in terms of the Pretrial Services Agency and their involvement with the National Association of Pretrial Services Agencies and sort of the, um, the use of assessment tools. Um, uh, but for the most part in Minnesota, I would argue you sort of have a blank slate. Um, so, So that's sort of good and bad, right? So in many ways you have, um, you're facing here what most states are facing, which is that your most populous counties have been trying to do or doing something for a long time. On the one hand, that's great. And on the other hand, that model that we've used for the last 20 or 30 years um, has become a very entrenched part of the system. And as as, One of my mentors used to say, the thing we reform today becomes a thing we have to, the the solution that we use to reform today becomes a thing we have to reform later. Mm. And so what has become in some of our largest counties across the country, um, what was reform once, which was assessing people and getting them out of jail, hopefully hopefully not on money bond, uh, became a a host of conditions in lieu of um, money bond that they couldn't meet. And those set of conditions have now become um, numerous and onerous. Um, And so I think the time is ripe to um, come up with a new model. Um, And what we've done at at the Pretrial Justice Institute over the last six months in particular is refocus from the process, which we've been very process focused over the last 40 years. This is how you get to the end. And instead just focusing on what are the outcomes that we're looking for and can you quantify pre-trial decarceration um and then say the communities this is where you're this is really the ultimate goal right and and then the, whatever the solutions are to get there the community should come up with mm-hmm. on uh, as a as a community so if you look at new jersey for example um New Jersey instituted reform, a package of reforms. They weren't just focused on the bail decision. Um, They were a set of um, reforms that included discovery and speedy trial, uh, the expanded use of citations in lieu of booking people into jail. They followed what we call the four R's um, at PJI. So the goals are to reduce the number of arrests, replace the money bail system that leads to decarceration, or leads to incarceration, excuse me, um, restrict detention down to a minute number of people, um, and raise equity. And the equity piece could be first, could be last in the R's, but really, I, we put it at the bottom because in an image, it really is the underpinning of everything. Um, and so... In New Jersey, they're down now. In 2018, the data shows that they're detaining only about 4 or 5% of people before trial throughout the whole state.
1: That's incredible.
0: It's an incredible number. Um, now, what the next set of things to look at are how onerous are the conditions that are being set. No money is being set on the 95%
1: of people who are being released. So the bondsmen are mm-hmm. finished. There's no money to keep them out of jail, but there could be...
0: Right, so we have to look and see. So who, um, uh, what are the conditions being set? Right. Um, you know, the, the, the no money bond is synonymous with no financial conditions of release at all, meaning if you have uh, conditions, they shouldn't come with any charge, right? So no fee associated with anything that you have to do um, before trial. But you shouldn't have to do much. Um, But that's a very, that's a standard model um, of kind of pretrial. And I think there are lots of opportunities to do community-based supports rather than state control supervision. Yeah. Is there a difference between bail and bond? So bail is the legal definition. The legal definition of bail is the contract between you and the court, agreement but legal agreement between you and the court of the conditions that you will agree to um, and and swear to um, uh, that you'll uphold before going to trial that usually is you agree to come to court without being re-arrested bond is a type of bail a bond condition is synonymous with money but over the last hundred years we have intertwined these words uh, because the predominant mechanism for release before trial has become money bond.
1: Gotcha. So um, I was reading a little bit on your three days count initiative. Can you share that with our audience? Sure. So about f- three or four years ago,
0: um, we launched a campaign. It was, called, it was a campaign because we had no money, so it wasn't an initiative. We didn't have any grant money to give away. We certainly didn't have any sort of free technical assistance to provide. We had a little. Um, so we launched a campaign with the notion that what we really wanted to do was uh, have states sort of stand up and kind of pledge that at the state level, um, either the legislature, the chief justice of a state, or the governor's office, one of the three branches of government, or two or three branches of government in partnership would come together and say, this state really needs to look at um, its bail practices across the whole state. We had noticed that um, certainly after 35 years of going county by county by county by county, you might as well just, it's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. By the time you got to the end, you'd have to start over. And no matter how far you could get a county in elevating its practices to the height of decarceration, they were always capped by whatever the state statute said. And so if we could get a combination of local practice to move forward while the state was fixing whatever the statute problems were, or in many states the Chief Justice has a lot of authority to issue court rule um, and that the statute defers to. If we could get these two things working together, Um, you could speed up reform and you could codify it um, in law. So it wasn't dependent upon an election at the local level. And so we named it Three Days Count because as we were um, working on launching the campaign, a couple of things happened. One, at the time a piece of research came out um, really quantifying what we had known anecdotally for years, which was that after only a couple of days in jail, about three days in jail. Um, low risk people, and we could talk about that because that's all. A, that's mm-hmm. a bit of a misnomer, almost everyone's quote unquote low risk, but, but people who go into jail who are stay otherwise stable, uh, meaning they're employed or are full-time caregivers, uh, they have stable housing, they're with their family, they're with their children, they're in their communities, after just a couple of days, those things get disrupted almost immediately. And um, when they finally do get released, um, they are more likely in the future uh, to, to be rearrested or
1: uh, fail to appear in the future. So we call it Meaning a... Meaning like they would lose child care, maybe lose their job, maybe lose their home. Yes. And that as a result of that spiral, then they end up getting into some situation that would bring them back to arrest. Yes. Or if they have a condition that they have to be employed...
0: No, the first thing that you said, okay. yeah. Okay. And it's not causal. So if there are any scientists listening to your podcast, it's not a causal relationship. It's just correlated. Okay. But um, as long as peanut butter is with jelly, we know they go together on a regular basis. You could pretty much suffice it to say correlation is, is good enough for me. Um, and having worked in reentry, I know, I just know that this is um, something that we, c- we at least in the physicians world we, we should do no harm right and so we knew this was doing harm at the same time um, in the same time frame you have sandra bland uh, get arrested uh, and and booked into a texas jail three days later she's dead um Kalief browder uh well uh, there are numerically a bunch of threes associated with Khalif, right three thousand um, dollar bond he was in jail for three years on rikers so So the fact that the three kept showing up, we decided to call this campaign three Three days count. And we got a number of states to to say, um, you know, this is something that we're really committed to doing. Um, And so we're
1: still doing it today. When we think about criminal justice reform, for many people, they're going to think we don't need dangerous offenders back in the street. So when we talk about pre-trial justice or we talk about mass incarceration and you thinking that this is one of the best levers to address that, who are we talking about? What, what offenses are we speaking of? Yeah, sure.
0: This is my favorite thing to talk about when I go before audiences because most people have a very distorted picture of who we arrest in the United States. Um, so... At the most recent estimates, about 80% of arrests, we're at about 11 million a year in the US, and about 80% of them are for misdemeanor charges. So the vast majority of people that we arrest and book into jails in this country are for misdemeanor charges. Of the 11 million people we arrest per year, only about 6% of those people will ever be sentenced to state prison. So 94% of people will have their cases handled in your local county jail. They will either spend the entirety of their case before trial incarcerated and then upon taking a plea or having their charges dismissed or taking their case to trial and having the court adjudicate, they will get credit for time served or they will be sentenced to probation Sometimes they will get sentenced to uh, an incarcerative sentence in the jail, but more likely than not, they will have already served the amount of time. And in fact, in a couple of cases, uh, some investigative journalists have done some work to show that that in some some cities, in some county jails, people have served more time pre-trial than legally would have been permitted to have been sentenced to. Um, upon conviction, years and years longer than the case would have been legally allowed to uh, have been sentenced to incarceration. So so every 94% of cases are being handled in your local county. Um, and most people are going to get probation. And so mass incarceration, when we think about it, I, I'm all for reentry, state prison, you know, helping folks get job training, all that stuff, fabulous. we should do that. and, um, jails are where the juice is and pre detention pre-trial incarceration is the thing that is vastly experienced by people who are arrested um, and so when you say what charges um, there isn't a jurisdiction I go into where people don't right off the bat want to say well Sharice I'll talk to you about this but not for this charge that charge or this charge are you saying that you want child molesters walking around on the street, rapists murderers and I say, what percent of the arrests in this county are for rape, or for murder, or for child molestation? Let's say 10%. Great. How about if we just talk about the other 90% for today? I'll come back and talk to the 10% of you later. Um, you, you have to get at those, um, but even if you just start talking about the lower level charges. But the one thing I want to circle back to is about Khalif Browder. Yeah. So the other thing is that this notion um, of what constitutes a violent crime in the U.S. um, has also been incredibly distorted. So when I was growing up, my mother used to say, oh, don't make a federal case out of that, right? When I was making a big deal out of something.
1: Which makes sense on why you ended up in the
0: Right, right. Because I used to make a federal case out of everything. But now everything is, right? So now drugs and crime, um, excuse me, drugs and guns are federal charges, whereas everything just federal used to be white collar. So now those charges are federal crimes, which means we had a lot of room at the state level for things to be sort of felonies. Um, I'm not saying there was a room in which a bunch of people sat around and said, let's make all of these things felony charges. Maybe there was. I'm just saying the ripping of a backpack off of someone's back um, if he did it. If he did it, even, even just, absent, you know, even objectively, if we're looking at a list of crimes, the ripping of a backpack off of another person is... Um, Which is, is what
1: Khalif Browder went to jail for.
0: Correct. Um, was, was, is categorized as a violent crime um, in that jurisdiction. And so I think that um, f- f- we've done a good job of selling people fear associated with certain crime uh, types and labels. Um, And so when folks talk to me about, well, surely I can't be talking about people charged with violent crime, the truth is if you look at the return rate to court for even federal defendants charged with guns and drugs, um, return rates are people come to court over 90% of the time and they don't get rearrested and so Truthfully, people charged with murder have the lowest rearrest arrest rate um, compared with other charges. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's not really something folks can get their heads around. Yeah, I'm not
1: sure I can right now either. Part of where I think I'm trying to go in my head and I can't figure out the question for it is that when you talk about the cases that move to the federal level and then kind of the impact on the state, and when I when I think about both the Ferguson and how they were using fines and fees and those citations to to fund the state, and I think about keeping prisons full and the industry around it, I mean, I guess I'm just like, what is the incentive to keeping people in jail? Like, what what is the what is the challenge with the reform? Right? Like, it feels oh, like if yeah, you know Two what I mean. Different buckets. They are like yeah. I'm just I can't. So
0: in one bucket, I think you have the commercialization, the capitalization of um, of criminal justice. So that's private prisons. That's the phone systems. That's the commissary. That is correctional health care. That's prison industry. Um, That is uh, that's a whole ball of wax over here. The other that the Ferguson issue is actually the fines and fees um, is because <laughs> criminal justice, the buildup of our system has bankrupted state budgets and county budgets and city budgets. And so municipal courts, which is really what the Ferguson issue was about, is about the city court funding itself by, fines and fees and so and it's just ironic it just seems odd to me because it's it's um you're you're talking about people who don't have money anyway and so recently san francisco published a report the um office of the treasurer and tax collector in san francisco is an independently elected office and the community went to them and said um how much money is actually being collected from the charges based on the telephone calls that people are getting billed for um, after they leave jail. And they were able to actually analyze that to show that it was actually costing the county more and the city of San Francisco more to run it the way they were running it than if they just simply paid for the phone calls outright. So so there is a because of the volume, the the inability to fund our own criminal justice system as a government has happened. I used to work at the Justice Department. The Justice Department puts uh, federal funds into the hands of state uh, governor's offices to fund criminal justice activities. It's called the Justice Assistance Grant program. It's billions of dollars that go from Congress out to the states. In the old days, that used to be maybe half of the state expenditure on criminal justice. In some southern states, it's almost 100% of the expenditure. So the state no longer has any money to spend on their own criminal justice infrastructure. They have run out of money. And it's almost 100% federal uh, money that's being used to fund that. So we've we've run out of funds to be able to support the thing we've put in place. And so now we're looking to the people who are interacting with the system to actually fund their own incarceration.
1: This is so complicated.
0: And the bail issue. Yeah. So bondsmen fit over here in this sort of outsourcing or privatization of a function of the criminal justice system yeah and it's all about an extraction of wealth so listen i've been i've been almost woke now for 12 or 13 minutes so this is how i talk now right all about extraction of wealth and exploitation so If you think about what the purpose of all of this is, um, uh, you could very easily start to see that debt and being in debt is as old as time itself, right? And so um, having, I remember when my mother said, oh, this is so great. You must be so excited. Um, People with felony convictions can vote now in Florida. And then all of a sudden, right? Now you can't. You can't vote unless you've satisfied your debt of restitution. And my mother said, why would they do that? I said, because the point is to not give them the vote. And the debt is what keeps you. So the debt is what keeps you. So the bondsman um, is an outsourcing of this debt. And so you can um, be, you can have your case dropped and still be on a loan note to the bondsman. You can um, make all your court appearances, but that non-refundable fee that you owe the bondsman—if it's ten thousand on a hundred thousand-dollar bond—you'll pay that. Um, you'll pay that note for years and years and years to come. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an extraction of wealth that happens in all of the system that costs money, um, and and then you so you have all of that, and then you have. Places where jails are actually giving people a bill when they leave for the stay. Or you get a bill for the car ride for your book, like you got arrested on 12th and you get booked on 9th Street and you get a bill for the ride from 12th to 9th in the cop car.
1: Because we can't afford it anymore. So we've talked a little bit on the, the economic impact or benefit. To cities and, and states, but have you are you do you do any work on what is the economic impact on community?
0: Not at the Pretrial Justice Institute. So okay. you know we're we're a shop of about fifteen people. Okay, um, we're just a, a little shop, but we have lots of great partners that do an amazing amount of research. So the Vera Institute out of New York um, has a great initiative on. Uh, it's called In Our Backyards where they're really looking at, in particular, a lot of the economic impact of jails in rural communities, sort of initially having been sort of sold this notion of economic boom um, and just the drain that it actually is on rural economy, um, and also a perpetuation of sort of the, um, I mean, there's just, it, it contributes a lot to um, racial tension and, um, so anyway, Vera, great research, um, great research reports on lots of economic impact um, of the criminal justice system. And,
1: and as we wrap, is there anything else that you would wanna share with audience either about the Pretrial Justice Institute that you haven't said about any um, work that you want people to get interested in, um, or any insights on what conversation should we be having around criminal justice? Just any, any framing sure. of all or, or none. We've got maybe a few minutes
0: left. Um, so just one is that uh, you know we have a, a, a website, pretrial.org, where folks can go uh, in particular to find out how to get involved locally and also just some very easy to understand briefing papers on what this all is and, and how it all works. Um, Secondly, if you're somebody who wants to dive in deeper, we have a University of Pretrial, which is a free online community. You can get engaged in conversation and we have some free courses and stuff like that. So that's a great resource for people. Um, I think that uh, what I would suggest here um, is that there's a real opportunity to be thinking about a different community-based model of uh, reform. And in many places that looks like um, not just sort of um, decarceration, but also going really after some of the serious issues you mentioned before, guns, violence, um, through a restorative justice model. Um, And I also believe that there are lots of communities that are really ready to um, take on an equity conversation I've been to plenty of almost all white like 90 95 percent white communities where the jail is 50 percent african-american and they are just it it astounds them why they have such disparity because they feel like such good people um and in in my sense is that continuing to focus on trying to reduce disparity in the jail rather than focus on raising equity in the community and looking at the structural relationships between the justice system, the health system, um, education. the education system, mm-hmm. all of those systems. Um, I think Ramsey County actually is doing some of that um, work um, in the juvenile justice system. Um, so I think there are lots of really good and interesting models out there that um, and uh, and then just one last thing about um, you know the money bond system um, was originally designed to help people get out of jail, and it has become the thing that is keeping people in jail. Um, and so you can be agnostic about money bond. Um, but you can't be agnostic about the unconstitutionality of being deprived your liberty while in a presumed innocent status. And almost everyone will come to court. Almost no one will get rearrested before trial. It happens in all sorts of jurisdictions across the country, um, and uh, and there's plenty of research to back that up. So mm-hmm. happy to help.
1: Yes. My, my final question maybe brings it uh, full circle in terms of um, – us being able to bridge the difference the racial difference that we're experiencing almost every single system that we have and I think one important um, conversation that we have is like how do we continue to evolve our own selves in the spaces and the places that we can influence around this and so um, just for our listeners um, you have mentioned a couple of of books do you have um, other um, practices or things that you've taken on to help yourself continue your journey of just understanding better yeah the racial complexity around um, these issues and what it means to be white and privileged um, in this work?
0: Yeah, great question. So um, on July 11th, um, which is the first day of our conference, we are releasing a paper that describes for our community... um, why we feel that there is no way to accomplish pretrial justice without um, taking on uh, an equity transformation of our organization, both internally and an equity transformation of our external work. Um, and that includes, so we're retaining you know, a consultant to come in, look at all of our internal practices, things like taking education requirements off our job descriptions. Um, Uh, looking at our... I mean, one of the practices we did that really shook me to my core was getting my hands on a list of white uh, dominant culture just descriptions, things that I was taught growing up were just like the way to be. They were all these type A characteristics, right? Um, And is that the the culture of oppression? Yes. Yeah, I know that Um, You know, um, and um, just noticing how um our staff meetings like our culture of our organization like so much of this was like high and you know high pressure and uh, high performance orientedness um and really just sort of skipped right over the spending too much time on the how you doing um and the relationships. so different practices like that as well as um we are um starting affinity groups um, and i in my in the paper that'll come out on the 11th will be a, a list of the books that i found particularly helpful in my journey so far um so uh and i, I have this, i have an equity therapist which i didn't know <laughs> existed but um it's a psychologist who has an actual specialty in equity transformation in particular of making uh white women into racial allies um I sought her out, uh,
1: because I ain't playing. Yeah. Good work. Thanks. Uh, The Minneapolis Foundation is is working hard to both raise up issues around equity, to um, put out on the table the challenges that we're all individually facing around either cross-cultural conversations or the conversations that are happening around our tables with every Every solution where we sit and then we break into our own groups and like they didn't hear us, you know, they didn't understand or why do they always come to the table like this and why, you know, we're, we're not really having um, kind of the depth and getting to to the grit of things. And so we really want to dive in there. Um, I appreciate you um, being here. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Please check out the Minneapolis Foundation website to find more episodes of this podcast information on upcoming events, and for my book recommendations. Thank you to Weber Shadwick for their partnership and support in making this podcast come alive.